industry focus. The podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, December 18th, and we're talking about the breakout tech stocks of 2020. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's main mega-misser of momentum-mounted, misunderstood multi-baggers, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how's it going? Dylan, this is our last tech show of 2020, which means 2020 is almost over. <laughs> I know. That- it's, it's, it's kind of mind-bendy when you think about it, the way the schedule falls, because uh, the, I think the Friday show and the Monday show generally wind up getting uh, slightly less than 52 episodes a year, just because of the way the holidays tend to fall. Uh, and in this case, yeah, for us to be two weeks out from the end of the year and this be the last episode is kind of wild. But Christmas on a Friday, we won't be doing a show then. And then New Year's Day, uh, the first on a Friday as well. So this is it. That's right. Home stretch of this <laughs> pandemic, and I welcome in with open arms a uh, hopefully better 2021. I think a lot of people are going to be very happy to turn the calendar page at the at the end of December. Uh, you know, whether it's one of those day by days or one of those monthly ones, either way, hopping into 2021 is going to feel very good. But we can't go to 2021 without first looking back at the year that was in 2020, and specifically, Brian. Today on today's show, we are going to be looking at the best tech stocks of 2020. Uh, Tech generally just a sector that exploded this year. Um, So many of the mega trends that have been pushing a lot of the companies that we often talk about on the show forward uh, came front and center. And really were, you know, whether whether it's e-commerce, payments, uh, you know, stay at home type things like gaming, social media. Basically, if you had any element of tech in your business, you were probably doing okay, Um, which is, you know, in stark contrast to a lot of other industries this year. 2020 was by far the weirdest investing year I've ever uh, been a part of. And I've been investing in the market since uh, 2004. And if I learned, if you, if, if the listeners have learned anything from 2020, I hope it's this don't listen to predictions. Nobody, nobody would have predicted anything about 2020. Uh, accurately. So it's a time of year when you're going to see prediction after prediction in the news. I hope 2020 has taught you to ignore them all. Yeah. And and I think it's also been a very humbling year in a lot of ways, because I, I don't know about you, Brian, but I wound up putting together a pretty good year for my portfolio, one that frankly is probably going to be the best year I ever have as an individual investor. It's going to be hard to top just because so many tailwinds were pushing so many of the stocks that I own forward and I'm overweight in tech. And you know, in some ways, I was right with some of those businesses, but I had no foresight to know that all of these mega trends were going to be pulled forward. All this growth was going to be pulled forward in this year in particular. There was no way to foresee any of that. And uh, to your point, uh, like you, my portfolio does have a, uh, a tech uh, bent to it. So 2020 was an outstanding year uh, for my portfolio. But really, it's amazing to think if you were given the unemployment numbers or any, any details about what was about to happen in 2020, it's crazy to me that the Dow Jones Industrial Average up 9% year to date, uh, S&P up 17%, and wait for it. The Nasdaq up 47%. Those are outstanding numbers for any year, let alone the backdrop of 2020. Yeah, and just as context, you know, typically when we're talking about long-term returns and compounding, if you're if you're trying to make reasonable estimates about what the stock market might be able to grow your wealth into, and you're talking about the S&P 500, 
we're looking at like a total return annualized of somewhere between 7 and 10%, Brian. So just right off the bat, we're way above that if you're looking at the S&P 500 and, and the NASDAQ just absolutely crushing that. Yeah, the Nasdaq essentially had four good years of returns in one in one year. So, uh, if you're listening to this, I hope that your portfolio shined uh, in response to that. Yeah, and and you know, it just reinforces uh, stay invested when you can. You know, put the money in there that you don't necessarily need anytime soon. Makes it a lot easier to stomach the volatility uh, that we saw this year because it would have been easy to look at things in March and April and say, "I'm out." You know, I'm, I'm I'm hopping out of that thing, and you would have wound up missing on all of the things that turned this year green. Uh, you would have wound up probably in the red. Yeah. The end of the year that says, don't try and market time. It's got to be 2020 because I guarantee you, if I was doing what I was feeling, holy cow, would I have lost out on a lot of gains. Yeah. And this was a particularly good year, Brian, for stock pickers. Uh, you know, people who are owning individual companies in their brokerage accounts. We're going to be detailing uh, six of the best companies in tech in terms of returns for 2020. Uh, and we're going to be doing some filtering here. You know, we we typically aren't talking about micro cap businesses. Uh, we're generally looking at companies that are on major exchanges. So you're not going to be hearing about any, you know, microscopic $20 million business that put up thousand percent returns. Um, but, but I think what is fascinating in looking at the list that we put together for this show, Brian, is the business that you would have expected to be front and center in the top of the tech returns, Zoom video doesn't even make the cut. That's incredible because Zoom had a phenomenal year, up 480%. But to your point, it didn't make the cut. And we did massage the list a little bit, to, as you said, any given year. There's always some penny stock that no one's ever heard of that puts up a 1,000% uh, gain. Uh, for the most part, the companies that we're going to talk about, uh, not only was the minimum return 530%, but a lot of these businesses, investors actually should know. Yeah, and that, that first one, why don't we kick it off right there? 530%. Uh, this is coming in sixth place, which I think anyone would be happy with 530% year to date returns, uh, is Jumia. And I'm sure that some of our listeners are familiar with this one, commonly referred to as the Amazon of Africa. We've talked about it on the show before. I know it's gotten play on Motley Fool Live, our member live stream before. Um, and really, Brian, I look at this business. And I think a lot of people had some pretty big expectations for it. The e-commerce model is something that we've seen play out fantastically in the United States. I mean, Amazon is really the poster child of big tech. But we've also seen this model work in South America with a company like Mercado Libre. A lot of people had a lot of conviction around this model working in Africa. Um, and typically, when you see something work in a couple different places, you know, you increase your confidence. So there was already some big expectations here. Um, this is a high-value kind of growth story. And that story, man, did it come to fruition in 2020. It just shows you the move away from physical retail towards excuse me, towards herds online is massive and it's global. And companies like Mercado Libre, companies like C Limited, like Alibaba, like Tencent, it's it's a global phenomenon. And there are so many ways for investors to play the trend. And Jumia is Jumia is definitely one of them. This is not a company that I know well, but after a 500% return, I'm going to start digging in. <laughs> and I'll say, this is what I'm kind of kicking myself on, because I had meant to just buy that small position, that tracking position, because there are, there are a lot of things that are pretty serious risks um, and threats with this company, but it's so compelling as an investment thesis. And I, I'm sure there's going to be some people that look at these numbers, Brian, and say, well, okay, I'm seeing 500 plus percent returns, but I'm looking at their financials and 
they actually posted declines year over year, their three most recent quarters. What gives? And and I think that this company had a really curious 2020 because for a world beater stock, you would be expecting, particularly an e-commerce company, just crazy growth rates, top line growth in the, in the double, maybe even triple digits. That didn't happen here. That's because this company went through a major transformation. They went from being a lot of uh, first-party transactions to third-party transactions on their platform. And so really becoming more of a platform and less of a seller. And that's a much more scalable business long-term. It's also a much more profitable business long-term. And so if you look at their financials, their gross margins moved from the mid-30s in 2018 to nearly 70% in 2020. That's a huge part of why the stock flew as high as it did in 2020. Yeah, we've seen lots of software companies, uh, Dylan, make the transition to the SaaS model. And when you do that, there's always short-term revenue pain. It seems like uh, Jumia is doing that, to your point, by moving from the low-margin first-party sales to the high-margin third-party sales. If they can do that successfully, and that brings a doubling in the gross margins, I can understand why investors are excited. Yeah, and this is one of those, it's a profitability-oriented move, but you know, people will say, well, you know, you guys don't seem to really want businesses that are orienting themselves towards short-term profitability. And this is something where I think it's more of a business model profitability move than them deciding we need to start making cash right now. And so I think this is management acknowledging this is a much more scalable, much more lucrative way to run this marketplace. Five, 10 years from now, it's probably going to be better for us to have done this. We're going to eat this pain short-term. Um, but really, if you think about them being able to do that, become some of these other names that we've talked about, Brian, there's still a lot of growth ahead of this company. It's a $3 billion business right now. Even to go to one of the other companies we talked about, uh, Mercado Libre, $80 billion company. Now, Mercado Libre does a lot more right now than Jumia does. They have a lot of fintech operations, um, and that's really becoming a driving force behind the stock. But again, when you have this type of uh, marketplace model, you can also layer those things in. You can follow the playbook that so many other companies have adopted because we know it works. That's great. And I think that's an excellent point about this still being a $3 billion company. If their model does work long term, does it really take a huge leap of imagination to think that this could be a $30 billion company uh, one day? I mean, to your point, Mercado Libre, $80 billion. Uh, C limited almost a hundred billion, so there's definitely upside potential if the model works. Yeah, you might just need to ex uh, adjust your earnings expectations and your and your and your year to date expectations for the next couple of years. Tough to match that one going forward. And really, I mean, the, the same for the second company that we're going to be talking about, Brian. Uh, EXP World Holdings. You did the homework on this one. What's the story? Terrible name. First off, let's acknowledge that. <laughs> e, it is called EXP uh, World Holdings. And I will say that this was a stock that uh, Jason Mosier and Matt Frankel uh, covered on Industry Focus back in uh, October. So this is a cloud-based provider of real estate brokerage um, uh, services. So they allow uh, brokers and buyers to access a huge pool of agents uh, across the, the country. Uh, the model here is very attractive if you are a real estate uh, professional. You can sign up with them and you actually can make more money by selling through their platform than you can with, say, a local uh, brokerage company. In response to that, uh, brokers have been flocking to this uh, platform. There's more than 36,000 
real estate professionals now uh, that are customers or plugged into uh, EXP World Holdings uh, brokerage network. That number was up 56% uh, year over year. And we know that 2020 was just a red hot year uh, for real estate. In the first half of the year, everything shut down and real estate transactions came to a, um, a, a crawl. Uh, in, in response to that, we've seen huge migration away from cities and just massive demand uh, in rural areas and, and suburbs. And EXP is really taking uh, advantage of that. When you combine their differentiated model with their growth in brokers, we saw revenue double up 100% last quarter to $564 million. Uh, gross profit more than doubled to $47 million, And the company cranked out $15 million in net income. So given the model here, the clear a vote amongst the brokers and the huge financial gains, understand about why the stock was up 570%. Yeah. And if you think about the tailwinds for businesses that have exposure to the real estate market, you know, low interest rates certainly help. And I don't think those are going anywhere anytime soon, based on what I've been reading uh, coming out from the Fed. So, you know, that, that catalyst is going to stick around for a little while for them. And this is still... Um, like Jamia, a pretty small company in the grand scheme of things. This is a $5 billion uh, uh, business for uh, for comparison. A company like Zillow, not a direct one-to-one comparison, but in this rough same area, uh, Zillow is a $30 billion business and still growing very rapidly. So once again, this is a company that I will be digging into because if the model here works and the numbers here clearly indicate that it does, there could still be a lot of gains ahead. You know, that's all good and well, Brian, but those are 500% returns we were talking about. You know, it's it's nice. We, we put them out there, but I think we need to set our sights a little bit higher. Uh, and, and the next stock does that. Uh, 679% year-to-date returns, uh, and that's Digital Turbine. Uh, ticker is APPS, A-P-P-S. Uh, admittedly, Brian, a company I wasn't super familiar with prior to doing the homework for this show. Um, this is a software company, and the ticker here says it all. It helps apps get discovered. They work in mobile content discovery. They have an on-device media platform, uh, specifically for mobile. They partner up with device makers and create opportunities for people who work in apps and content to have their stuff found. Kind of an interesting business, a little bit of a hard one to wrap your head around um, and visualize. But they have over 40 partnerships in the mobile space. Uh, About 500 million devices currently have a digital turbine software uh, on there. And the company has 10 million daily active users for its content media software. One of the most encouraging things for me with this, aside from all the tailwinds, is 60 million of those 500 million downloads happened in the last quarter alone. So a huge part of the growth story happening uh, very recently, and it signals to me that this is just going to continue in the coming quarters. They're kind of at that inflection point and a lot more growth ahead. This is a company that if you look at any stock chart, I mean, this went from trading at about a dollar to just under $2 a share to currently $58. And actually, it's up another 9% uh, today. Don't know why that's happening. But (laughs) hey, uh, digital turbine shareholders are having another great day. And when the company is in the market that it is, and we've seen explosive growth uh, like this, understandable why investors are excited. Yeah, 2020 was a pretty good year for the business. This is something that is kind of at the intersection of a lot of major trends. Uh, They're mobile first, which is obviously great. We have seen the effectiveness of digital ads. um, And and the middleman business is a very good business to be in. Uh, It can be very high margin uh, if if you do things correctly. Um, This is always going to be a growth stage story uh, and and certainly will be for the next couple of years. Uh, But even now, they have about $200 million in trailing 12-month revenue 
if you're looking for the reason why we saw some incredible returns this year, Brian, they went from year-over-year growth in the 30% range to 93% year-over-year growth and then 116% year-over-year growth in the past two quarters. Uh, people staying at home, people doing a lot of things on their phones, those are generally going to be good for this business. Uh, you couple that with them deepening their relationships in the OEM space, and I could see that growth continuing. Yeah, this is another company that, despite the huge gains, is still a roughly $5 billion company. I don't know what kind of long-term growth potential uh, this company has, but if it's substantial, uh, like we saw for uh, EXP and Jumia, uh, there could be reason to believe that this trend can continue. Yeah, and it's kind of at an interesting point with valuation, right? $5 billion business, $200 million in trailing 12-month revenue. 25 times sales is not insane for a company that's posting triple digit growth. You know, I think one of the big existential questions in tech for 2021 will be what do we do with these growth rates? You know, we've seen some crazy adoption in 2020. Uh, how do we even set our expectations for a semi normal or back to normal existence? You know, what does it look like for these companies? Um, so I, I think that that is something that remains to be seen. I need to do some more homework on this one before it's a watch list worthy stock for me, but certainly an interesting story in 2020. 2021, to your point, Dylan, I mean, we've seen so many things that could be masking uh, weaknesses in businesses because stock prices are on the rise. And if you're in the right, if you're just in the right industry, your revenue has just exploded. I really like what you said there because 2021 is going to be the real tester of a year to see are these growths, is, was this a one time growth bonanza or is the company permanently set up for success? That will be something interesting to watch. Yeah, that's the thing about those step changes in growth, right? <laughs> is it's really wonderful for those first three or four quarters. And then you start running into them for comps and you, and you have to figure <laughs> out, you know, are we able to continue growing at this clip or, you know, did this just kind of pull all this stuff forward and now we're a, light, a slightly more mature business than we would have been um, a year or two prior. Um, Brian, thinking about the mega trends for 2020, our, our next stock is front and center. I mean, you know, we, we have all these people working from home. We have a, a much more growing acceptance of remote work um, and less uh, rigid work environments. Fiverr, uh, our next stock, is at the intersection of that. And this is a stock that we've highlighted on the, the, the show before. Most recently, we talked about it uh, on November uh, 6th. This is a platform that connects uh, freelancers with businesses that are interested in hiring. And Fiverr has dozens upon dozens of categories. If you know anything about software development, marketing, uh, social media expertise, SEO expertise, Shopify, uh, translation, if you need a book cover, et cetera, et cetera. If you have skills to sell, platform uh, Fiverr has become a great platform to go to to sell them. Prior to talking about Fiverr, both of us talked about uh, Upwork, which we th both thought was the market leader uh, in the industry. And I know I, for one, was like, why isn't this company growing faster? Uh, the answer was Fiverr. Fiverr is really the company that has attracted, uh, has become the go-to platform uh, in many ways. And while it's still smaller uh, than Upwork from a revenue perspective, it is just posting outstanding uh, revenue uh, growth. So last quarter, company's top line grew 88% to $42 million. This is an extremely high margin business with a gross margin of uh, 84%. It is pumping out free cash flow, and it predicts that for, uh, for the upcoming quarter, it's going to post another 77% growth. So this is a very exciting company that I actually took a position in in 2020. 
this one's a tough one for me to talk about, Brian, because I am an Upwork shareholder, and and I feel like all of the gains that Fiverr's enjoyed has been, uh, in, you know, in some ways at my expense. But uh, Upwork has thankfully gotten its act together a little bit in the past couple quarters, and and seems to be on a you know slightly better path going forward. It's a market beater again at this point, um, but. Yeah, I think I think Fiverr's growth is just incredible and shows that uh, it it may not be first right now, but it will be very quickly if this trend continues. It's all about revenue growth, right? And to your point, Dylan, Upwork really has gotten its act together. It's a company that was doing low double-digit revenue growth, and more recently that number has increased. It's going to be a testament to say, well, is that a one-time blip or is that something that's going to play into 2021? I don't know, but we're going to find out. Yeah, and and I think you know we've talked about this space a couple times now on the show. This is not necessarily a winner take all space, particularly with two businesses that are of this size um, operating here together. I think you could probably put money on both and just say, you know, I I've got a pretty good uh, setup for the future of work and decentralized workforces, and just walk away. You know, that's not a bad strategy right there. Diversification can be your friend when you're unsure about which is going to be the winner. But I think it's a category that will produce returns for investors. So 2020 kind of stoked the fire a little bit for Upwork. Um, Same goes for our next stock, Brian, Overstock. And this is kind of one of those old internet names that became relevant again in a big way in 2020. You should be scratching your head if you have not heard the story that is Overstock in 2020. Uh, This was an also-rand e-commerce company that was just down in its luck for years and years and years. Revenue uh, was declining. And in the age of uh, Amazon, I mean, do we need a company like Overstock? Well, they came back with a vengeance uh, in 2020. This company's return, 822%. Now, a big reason for that is because uh, I think of some hype related to two of their ancillary businesses. We'll get into those in a couple of seconds. But what surprised me was Overstock has made a huge push into the home furnishings uh, market. We saw that Wayfair had a really sharp rebound from its uh, 2020 lows, and people are now getting very comfortable with ordering big, bulky furniture online. Overstock is pushing hard to become the number two player uh, in that market, and it's trailing uh, Wayfair, but it is making up uh, ground. Uh, I was surprised to see that home furnishings actually account for 92% of this company's uh, revenue. And they actually added, reported 140% growth in new customers uh, over the last uh, year. That Those numbers are very impressive, especially since it's not like Wayfair is, uh, is hurting right now. No, it's it's been a pretty good stock to own as well. Uh, didn't make this list, but has been a, an incredible performer. Um, Brian, I kind of think of Overstock as like that friend who you don't hear from too often, and when you do, it's like he's hiking in Chile, or you know, <laughs> you know, like she lives on the West Coast now, and you're like, wait, what happened? Um, and and a big part of that is they they had this push into blockchain and cryptocurrency a couple years ago that sent the stock on a frenzy. It was kind of when everyone was dipping their toe into blockchain, and and I think a lot of people at the time looked at that and they were like, what what is this company doing? You know, like strategically, how does this fit in at all? Um, it it isn't a major contributor, but it is a part of the thesis, I think, at this point. That's how they are really trying to brand themselves. I mean, make no mistake, for right now, they are still an e-commerce company focused on 
uh, home furnishing. That is the vast majority of their revenue, but they are trying very hard, and I would argue even successfully, to brand themselves as a blockchain and crypto company. So they have a trading platform called T0 uh, that allows users to trade in cryptocurrencies, but Management actually sees huge potential for this platform beyond cryptocurrencies. They're calling out that they want to use this uh, platform, which is based on blockchain technology, to uh, transact uh, real estate in the private markets, as well as provide a market for private companies uh, to raise capital and uh, and um, c- talked with uh, with investors. That's an interesting angle uh, if they can 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 do it. But for right now, T0 is primarily focused on uh, cryptocurrencies. And if you've been following Bitcoin at all in 2020, you know that cryptocurrencies are once again red hot. <laughs> they are. And, and I think at least my perspective over the last couple of years in this company, I've just kind of wondered where their edge was. You know, hearing an e-commerce player get into blockchain, crypto, and, and a lot of kind of more financial type transactions moving away from traditional retail uh, was kind of a head scratcher for me because I wasn't really sure what expertise they were bringing into the mix and whether they really had an edge over the field aside from maybe being a name that people recognize. I still haven't figured that out, Brian, to be honest. Uh, I, I don't know whether this is like a real strategic advantage for them and something that they're going to be able to become a market leader in. I will say, just just as an investor, when I see management teams spreading further and further away from what the business does at core, I do send. I, I tend to get a little suspicious. And I think that that is completely valid. I believe when they launched this was in 2017 or 2018, whatever year that Bitcoin just went absolutely crazy and was uh, the talk of every Thanksgiving uh, dinner table. Essentially, that's when they made this uh, this this big push. So like you, I thought, what are they doing? Is this just a chance to rename themselves as a blockchain to reignite investor enthusiasm. I mean, say what you will, but they seem to be deadly uh, serious about this. They have actually set up a VC arm uh, within their company that they use to invest in upcoming uh, platforms that are based on uh, uh, blockchain technology. And they call out investments that they've made in companies that help with uh, voting, uh, supply chain management, banking and currency, uh, identification, uh, land t- Killing, et cetera, et cetera. So whether you whether you acknowledge it or not, they think that they are deadly serious about blockchain. Yeah. And and this is a business that, you know, to date I have just been wrong about. I I, w- I think I was kind of casually dismissive of what they were doing in the blockchain crypto space. Um, frankly, for my money, didn't really feel like they were worth investing in in the e-retail space either, just because there were seemingly market-leading companies ahead of them like um, you know, Wayfair and, and some other e-commerce companies you know, that don't necessarily work in the home furnishing space, but seem to have just a better path forward, like Etsy and Amazon. Um, I've been wrong <laughs> so far about this, and, and I think this company deserves a lot of credit for making things work. They're still very much in the early innings, though, of these other businesses, and they're not they're not really contributing all that much. I think you said 92% of the revenue, Brian, is coming from home furnishings. They have some high growth rates when it comes to some of the stuff they're doing on the capital market side, but it's not going to be where they get most of their money anytime soon. And I don't think... I don't particularly think you were wrong for ignoring this company. This company came public in 2002, and up up until essentially January of this year, it was a market loser. It was down substantially and did nothing uh, but produce bad results for investors. So if you quote unquote uh, missed it, it's just because of the performance in 2020. 
Yeah. And, and you know, it's okay to be wrong. And, <laughs> and it's particularly okay to say, you know, this is interesting, but I don't get it. Um, and, and that's just been my stance with Overstock. We might be in a spot, Brian, where weirdly e-commerce is the cash cow <laughs> that gives them the ability to do all these other things down the road. I will happily watch that as a spectator rather than a shareholder, though. That seems to be the thesis, Dylan, and if they can make it work, my hat's off to them. I'm probably still not going to ever become a shareholder, but hey, good for them if they can do it. All right, Brian, our last stock in our roundup here is one that I was not too familiar with, um, and you did the homework on, Veritone, ticker V-E-R-I. Yeah, this is a company that... I looked deeply at the documentation that they provide for investors, and I am still not 100% sure what this company does and what makes it so special. But the stock is up 931% uh, this year. So I said, all right, well, we got to talk about it. So this is a software company that is focused on artificial intelligence and digital advertising. What they do is they seem to specialize in providing an operating system that you can use to uh, look at audio uh, and video and text uh, to derive insights uh, into your your company. Now, this was a very small company 900% ago, which again, all occurred in 2020. So I was expecting it to be an also-rand. When you dig in, this company's customers include ESPN, Microsoft, CNN, the NFL, Fox Sports, CNBC, Bloomberg. So they are doing something uh, special to attract those kind uh, of customer bases. For right now, the majority of their revenue is derived from digital uh, advertising. So you can use their platform to optimize uh, digital brand campaigns. And that accounts for uh, about uh, a little over uh, half of revenue. However, they're pushing their platform to be used in a range of use cases, uh, and they provide some examples uh, on their website. Uh, One of the things they say is a utility uh, can use their AI system uh, to manage, to look at uh, weather, weather patterns, to optimize for electricity generation, to basically make that system uh, more efficient. Another interesting use case is a the NFL can apply their uh, AI software on top of video footage so that you can actually search that video footage for faces in the crowd or logos in the crowd or objects uh, in the crowd through through video uh, footages. Uh, unfortunately, governments can actually use this same technology uh, for, for Homeland uh, Security uh, purposes. So that's kind of the crux of what the company does. And it is producing some results. So the financials are looking okay. Uh, last quarter revenue grew 23% uh, to 16 million. Uh, the gross margin expanded to 71%. Uh, their, uh, their AI business is actually growing quicker. It's grew, it reported 43% uh, revenue growth and net loss uh, is uh, shrinking. So it's a hard company to really wrap your head around when it comes to just saying, hey, we're involved in AI, but hey, Investors really had a great year in this company. Yeah, I, I like that you highlighted the customers there, Brian, because my go-to when I am out of my depth uh, and I'm looking at a business is to say, all right, I need some social proof here. 
I, I, I need to see that people who know this space well enough um, or are making investments in the folks that are really doing cutting edge work in whatever industry they're in have decided to hop in here. And so those are big names. That That's definitely reassuring. And we know, you know, you don't have to look far in the full universe for some really great digital advertising plays that have rewarded shareholders handsomely. Uh, you know, the Trade Desk, Magnite. Um, it, obviously, this business works in a slightly different capacity, but, you know, any exposure to that means generally high gross margins uh and we've seen the strength of digital businesses in general this year so maybe no surprise there yep so and good and good for them for having a great year uh the numbers that i see don't i mean if you if you have 23 percent revenue growth i don't see how that translates directly into 900 percent uh gain in your uh in your in your stock price but hey maybe i'm missing something here so this was one that i looked at and looked at and just came away still scratching my head so don't go out and buy it but hey golf clap for the shareholders here yeah, and, and still a small company, Brian. It's only about an $800 million business, even after all of that growth. Um, so, you know, there, there's there's a lot that's still being priced into this business and, and a lot that it could choose um, to live up to. And actually, one, Brian, that if, if we were to the show in the beginning of the year, it would be too small for us to talk about. That's right. Yes. <laughs> you have to 10 bag to get on to the $800 million uh, uh, range. So, again, uh, good for them. One of the ones that uh, is, is the biggest head scratcher for me. But all right, Dylan. So, we have Jumia, EXP World Holdings, Digital Turbine, Fiverr, Overstock, and Veritone. I want to know which of these is at the top of Dylan, Re- Dylan Lewis's research list. Well, you know, Jumia was there. And this, this is one of those situations where I should have just bought that first position um, because I talked about it. And I think at the time when we did the show originally, it might have been less than a billion dollar business. And, you know, to think about what the upside potential is for uh, what is generally looked at as a first mover um, on, on a continent that doesn't have a massive e-commerce footprint yet. We've seen this model play out successfully. It, it feels like something that is worth a small amount of money as a tracking position. And then you see the results come in and decide whether you want to allocate more. So I'm mad I didn't do that. This one's probably at the top of my list for that reason, uh, because I already had the background there. But I do think EXP World Holdings is a particularly interesting business as well. Yeah, that's the one from here. Uh, my favorite of, of, of these six is definitely Fiverr. And I better say that because it's the one I'm a shareholder uh, of. But I would say that EXP is a strong uh, number two. They really seem to be on fire with the real estate uh, world and they're expanding uh, geographically. Their platform is is profitable and uh, the real estate market is just massive. So that's one that I look forward to digging into more. Yeah, and, and I think with all of these, you know, we, we have to remind ourselves huge run up, but what we've seen historically, Brian, is winners keep winning. You know, quality businesses wind up getting attention and all of these companies are small companies. You know, they, they are none of these are, you know, in the tens of billions of dollars in terms of market cap. Um, so, you know, if, if they are able to continue to grow, continue to gain market share, and that thesis continues to play out, um, there should be a decent amount of runway for all of them, despite the run up that they've gone on in 2020. 100% agree. The question will be, is the run-up that we've seen one-time driven and it was because it was beaten down so much and the business just proved to be not as bad as investors were predicting? Or is the company on an actual long-term uh, trajectory up? That's some, that's the homework that investors will have to do. But I think one of these two, one or two of these companies could have a bright future ahead. Yeah, you never want not as bad to be the takeaway. <laughs> you know, if, if that's what winds up being the headline from the earnings release, you know something isn't good. <laughs> Hey, if if it's not as bad and it results in a 900% gain, I'll take it, Dylan. 
That's true. Brian, uh, thank you so much for doing this show with me and also just doing all these shows with me in 2020. It's been, it's been such a joy, particularly as we've been staying home, to continue chatting every week and kicking around these companies. Right back at you, Dylan. I so enjoy doing Friday's uh, tech, tech episodes with you. Learned a lot, had a lot of fun. <laughs> well, I hope you and your family have a nice holiday and a happy new year. Uh, we will, uh, we'll be back on it again in 2021. Hard to say that. I know, right? (laughs) It's weeks from now, but yes, we will be back. I look forward to it. (laughs) Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com, or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, fool on. Fool on.